We'll hear argument next to number 926073, Richard Lyle Austin versus the United States. Mr. Johnson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether the Eighth Amendment, and specifically the Excessive Fines Clause, applies to the concept of, uh, applies to the civil forfeiture under 21 U.S.C. section 881A4 and A7. Mr. Richard Lyle Austin is the owner of the Garrison Body Shop and also of a 1972 mobile home that were seized by the government under the, these appropriate statutes. Facts of the case show that he transferred two grams of cocaine to someone in the body shop and that he obtained this from the mobile home. Uh, a subsequent search of the mobile home and body shop indicated there were small amounts of cocaine, some paraphernalia, and some small amounts of marijuana. Mr. Austin pled guilty in state court. He was sentenced to seven years. The government seized his mobile home and his body shop, which was his livelihood. Um, and he had been in the auto body shop for about 25 years. The affidavit in the record indicates he intended to return to that job, that type of living, uh, the body shop living, when he got out of prison. The district court granted summary judgment. The Court of Appeals reluctantly affirmed, indicating that the technical legal dis distinctions regarding in personam and in rem prohibited it from reaching the issue of the Eighth Amendment uh, ap applicability. Also indicated that clear court decisions by this court and other courts do not require proportionality in the civil proceedings for the forfeiture of property. I want to make three points in this oral argument. First is that where the government stands to gain monetarily, the excessive fines clause should apply and the Eighth Amendment proportionality should apply. Secondly, that the in-rem fiction shouldn't bar the application of the excessive fines proportionality analysis when the civil forfeitures are quasi-criminal or punishment in actual character. And thirdly, under this court's decisions in Helper and Kennedy versus Mendoza-Martinez, those tests actually show that this civil forfeiture is punishment. First of all, regarding the, the first point, the court's decision in Browning versus Ferris uh, provides a basis for applying the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause to civil actions and to forfeitures. I thought we rejected the application there. You indicated that you rejected the application to um, actions between private parties. You left open the possibility that when the government is involved, that the excessive fines clause could also be uh, applicable. And in fact, you suggested in, I think, a footnote quoting Helper that it, it might give rise to the Eighth Amendment analysis when the government stood to gain punitive damages. And in Justice O'Connor's concurring and dissenting opinion, there was a substantial analysis of the historical um, development of the excessive fines clause and the fact that uh, fines and forfeitures are equivalent and that, in fact, the Eighth Amendment should apply to civil actions. Um, your quote in Browning versus Ferris regarding the Court of Vermont also indicated, Supreme Court of Vermont also indicated that in certain circumstances, you felt that the excessive fines clause or the Eighth Amendment could be applicable. 
In your case, Harmelin versus Michigan, Justice Scalia's footnote also indicated that it makes sense to scrutinize governmental action more closely when the, when the state stands to benefit. It's clear that under 21 U.S.C. 881, A4, and A7, the government has stood to benefit. Uh, we cite in our brief an article from Newsweek which indicates that since 1985, the government has uh, obtained about $2.6 billion through this forfeiture proceeding. There's also a quote by the director of the asset forfeiture um, branch of the uh, Attorney General's office that says that civil forfeiture is the goose that laid the golden egg. There's another quote also that we indicate from an uh, American criminal law review um, article in which it indicates that in August of 1990, the U.S. Uh, Attorney General warned U.S. attorneys that the department was far short of its projected $470 million in forfeiture deposits and urged them to uh, increase the efforts in order to make the uh, budget uh, goal during fiscal year 1990. And this was in August of 1990. And Mr. Austin's what, what, what does this prove? Well, it shows, I think, that there should be some... Um, some sort of check on the government. Just as Justice Scalia says, it makes sense to, to scrutinize government actions more closely. What it indicates is that there is, an, there is a possibility for overreaching. Uh, so the Constitution automatically erects a shield against it? I think that the Constitution uh, protects individuals from uh, government overreaching if that happens, if there's a possibility of it. And there is the possibility of it under this forfeiture statute. Well, what do you do with a case like Calero Toledo, which says that even an in innocent owner, and no one contends, I take it, that your client is innocent, no. even an innocent owner, can uh, the property can be taken under traditional forfeiture law? Uh, Calero Toledo uh, uh, needs to be distinguished and possibly even looked at again, I think, number one. In well, what's the matter with it? it? It always struck me as a perfectly good case. Well, uh, Calero Toledo, the Eighth Amendment wasn't raised. That would be one point. Secondly, uh, although Calero Toledo indicates, as, as you said, that the in-rem forfeiture really shouldn't deal with the uh, guilt or innocence of the owner, in fact, it does establish an innocent owner exception. And, and thirdly, forfeitures at the time of Calero Toledo weren't the same as they are now. Um, the forfeitures that the government is uh, having under 21 USC 881, A4, and A7 are far in excess of what was happening back at the time of Calero Toledo. What difference, do, what difference does it make uh, uh, how, ex how much money you're talking about if it's money being taken from an innocent person? How can disproportionality have any meaning once you acknowledge that the car or the ship or, or the facility that belongs to a totally innocent person may be taken. Even if it's only worth $100, that, that's vastly disproportionate to his guilt. I, I assume pro proportionality means proportional to guilt. Right? But all these in-rem things uh, at common law could be imposed against a totally innocent person. I think, doesn't that conclusively establish that there's no proportionality requirement for, uh, for in-rem takings? I think that in-rem forfeiture under common law, and as the, at the time that the framers knew it, is different than the forfeiture that we're experiencing today. I think that the, the cases established that uh, in-rem forfeiture at that time was against ships, 
dealt with piracy, uh, uh, dealt with violations of the customs laws. Cars? Which are instrumentalities, which can be instrumentalities of, of drug use. But when it comes to someone's home, or in this case, the, the business, these were incidental in, a, in effect to the drug use. In other words, he could have transferred this drug use anywhere, uh, outside, uh, in somebody else's well, place. What if he did it? What if, they, what if the defendant just did business out of his house, the drug business out of his house? If there was, if the house was used specifically for that purpose, if, if it was, if there was a history then of... Then no proportionality? Then there should be proportionality, but uh, it should be analyzed under a series of factors. That's what proportionality is, as we advocate it. There should be many factors, or several factors, that are applied. Factors such as the, uh, the circuit courts have applied in criminal forfeiture cases in order to determine whether all of the property should be forfeited, whether some of it should be forfeited, or whether none of it should be I thought this particular statute does provide a defense for innocent owners, does it not? Yes, it does. I mean, we're dealing here with what could be characterized as uh, a punitive sanction. I believe that's true, yes. I think that's an example of why it is a punitive sanction, because you do have the innocent owner defenses in both uh, A4 and A7. Um, we are asking that the court apply proportionality analysis to someone who uh, is not innocent, like Mr. Austin. Uh, you mean if, if, let's assume you have a good old, the most old-fashioned, old-fashioned in-rem forfeiture statute around. Uh, you forfeit the ship if it's used for, for contraband, okay? If Congress should enact a, an amendment to that statute that says, however, if the ship belongs to an innocent person who didn't know it was being used for contraband, it shall not be forfeited. That would convert it to no longer uh, a classic in-rem forfeiture, and thereafter it would be subject to a proportionality requirement. Well, I think that, that first of all, I think Congress, in a sense, has uh, enacted that type of law with, under A4. And I understand, but I, I understood your argument to be that since an innocent person gets off in this one, we, we should impose the proportionality requirement because that renders it uh, punishment, whereas the ordinary in-rem thing was not punishment. That's correct. Yeah, I believe so. So you, your answer to my hypothetical would be yes, that if Congress got tender-hearted and said, well, let's make an exception to our traditional in-rem forfeiture of uh, pirate ships, and we'll say if, uh, if the owner of the ship was innocent of the piracy, uh, we won't forfeit it. That would convert it suddenly to... Uh, to a punishment, and if it was just a small-time pirate, you wouldn't be able to take the ship even from the pirate. Well, I, I think that would depend. Because that would be too much punishment. It, it could depend on the cases. I guess it depends on the, the facts of the particular case. That's what I would say. Well, it seems to me it's in rem, it's in rem whether or not you, you decide to let the innocent person off. I, I don't see how that makes it. it. It can be in rem, but it can also be punishment. If, well, is, is it punishment if, if the uh, owner... Uh, has not engaged in punishable misconduct? I mean, well, how, cer how, how... Certainly would be punishment then, yes. Obviously... If the, if the uh, owner has not engaged in punishable conduct... If the owner has not engaged in punishable then conduct... Then how, how would that be punishment? Well, if, if the owner had not done anything wrong and yet had the property seized and forfeited, then obviously yeah. that, that certainly would be punishment to that particular person. I wouldn't have thought so. It might be a confiscation, but I, it's a little hard to call it punishment, I would think. If the person has done nothing wrong, it seems like, then it would be punishment if the person <coughs> would have their assets taken. I guess that's what I would say. The, uh, 
excessive fines clause also should apply because the government is able to uh, use this forfeiture procedure without the uh, traditional safeguards, procedural safeguards that would apply in most criminal cases. The government needs to only establish probable cause, can establish uh, hearsay evidence, uh, and then the claimant has the burden to prove the claimant's innocence or uh, some other defense that might be applicable in the case. Uh, but you would be you would be making the same argument uh, if the forfeiture was done after a finding of guilt beyond reasonable doubt. That's true. Yes, and the reason is because. Well, why don't we talk about the case like that? You'd still be making the same argument. Yes, I would. It, there was guilt in this case. He pled guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet uh, his involvement was relatively minor. At least that's what the record seems to indicate. And yet he lost his home and he lost his business, uh, a business that he'd been involved in, not that particular um, particular place, but he's been involved in that business for well, 20 years. How about somebody like Mr. Harmelin, as we all call them all, and Mr. Uh, in the in the in the drug case from Michigan, where he, he was convicted of a relatively minor uh, uh, offense of p possession, I guess perhaps with intent to distribute, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Uh, yes. uh, surely, that's a much more severe punishment than the loss of one's mobile home, and yet we held that was not barred by the Eighth Amendment. That's true. You did, and I think you felt that. Uh, the states obviously had the right to uh, enact laws that were like that. The other thing is, though... Well, we felt the Constitution didn't prohibit the states from doing that. Yes, that's true. And But the amount of drugs in that case was uh, 600 and some grams, I believe, too. And yours was only two grams? Only two grams, yes. In your case, do you agree with the, uh, the correctness of the government's statement that if your client had been prosecuted federally, the fines could have amounted to a million dollars? Well, I think the statute probably allows that, but that never would have happened. It, well, if it had happened, is the, would, the, would, this, would the application of the statute be unconstitutional? I, I think one could argue that that would be an excessive fine for someone that is in form of operas. Uh, in my experience representing persons who are uh, in under court appointment, uh, the fine provision is never used because they are not able to pay the fine. I assume the higher the fine, uh, the poorer you are, the, the easier it is to impose a higher fine. Uh, uh, to the extent you're insolvent, you don't pay it anyway. Uh, what, uh, usually, I, I think it would, usually, at least in my experience, the fine is not imposed if the person is not able to pay it. Well, why, wh what is the reason why it's disproportionate here? Because there are only a couple of grams involved? Why? why? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a violation of the drug laws. Right. There are a couple grams involved. Uh, this was a first offense for him. He lost his business, which was his means to earn a living, and he lost his home. Well, it depends entirely upon how serious the society content considers a drug offense to be, I suppose. I think that's a factor, mm -hmm. but, but also we're asking the court to take into consideration the other factors, that someone who, who has lost everything they have for a relatively minor offense uh, well, it's not relatively minor if society really has its face set against drugs and, and, and and has provided for, at the federal level at least, for penalties of the, of the sort that, uh, that has been mentioned. How can we say it's, it's relatively minor? I can only look to the federal statute and say, gee, at least the federal government thinks this is very serious stuff. It's very harmful to society. It is harmful to society. And, and the, certainly the, the, the government has to have uh, laws which help it in its war on drugs. But um, 
the other thing that's true is that the full weight of the war on drugs shouldn't be visited on one person for this particular offense. Well, from the statistics you gave, it isn't. <laughs> that's true, but this person had lost everything because of it. So from his point of view, I think as the, as the Court of Appeals alluded to, uh, he lost everything that he had. And in a sense, from his point of view, it has been. He, he, he's at least able to start over again in a way that Harmelin never was, spending that's the rest true. of his life in jail. That's true. Yes, that's right. Have you got any cases on your side? Well, I think the Helper case is on our side, uh, at least as far as the, the punishment issue. We're arguing mainly that the Eighth Amendment should apply to this case. Have you got any cases applying it, <coughs> applying it to the... Uh, uh, to civil cases? The Whaler's Cove case from the Second Circuit applies it, although the Waver, Whaler, Whaler's Cove case on the facts finds that um, it, it does not uh, apply. And, and strictly speaking, I guess it was an Eighth Amendment uh, application. It said that the excessive fines clause argument had been abandoned. So it applied, I think, the cruel and unusual punishment clause uh, and found that under the proportionality analysis that it, it wouldn't make any difference. But it, it applied the Eighth Amendment anyway. It applies the Eighth Amendment, yes. But as far as the excessive fines clause, it doesn't, so I, I don't think it's necessarily instructive on that issue. This would be the first case that really the court has had to decide that applies the excessive fines clause to this type of... Uh, Have you got any state Supreme Court cases uh, on your side? No, not that have applied the excessive fines clause, no. Or, or under their own constitutions? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the helper case indicates that a civil sanction that cannot fairly be said solely to serve a remedial purpose, but rather can be explained only as also serving either a retributive or deterrent purpose as punishment, as we have come to understand the term. I don't think there's any question that civil forfeiture serves a retributive or deterrent purpose in addition to whatever remedial purpose it might serve, because it also serves that it's, it's punishment within the, under the understanding of that term. Because it is punishment, the excessive fines clause should apply. The in rem, in personam distinction also should not bar the court from considering this issue. The court's past cases, uh, first of all, are instructive. One, 1958 Plymouth Sedan, Boyd versus the United States, U.S. versus coin and U.S. versus U.S. coin and currency, all see through the in rem, in personam distinction and apply um, the Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment uh, protections to in-rem actions. Um, the statutes themselves, as I indicated, establish that this is punishment rather than uh, just remedial. They have innocent owner exceptions. They're tied to a violation of the criminal law punishable by more than one year's imprisonment. Um, there are procedures for remission or mitigation of forfeiture, and they're based on violations of the Controlled Substances Act. What did the um, what did the prior or the old law mean when it defined the objective of the in-rem in rem action as remedial? Remedial in the sense of removing an instrumentality of the crime from the hands of criminals? Yes, that was one of the... Well, that's exactly what's being done here, isn't it? Well, I guess I'd argue that the, the body shop and the mobile home were not instrumentalities. They weren't specifically structured or designed for this type of drug use. In other words, they, there wasn't a manufacturing plant in there. There weren't secret compartments. Uh, they weren't... Well, ships were not necessarily de uh, designed for smuggling either, but they were used for that. And 
warehouses on Long Wharf in Boston weren't necessarily built for smuggling, but that's what they were used for, and they were forfeitable, I suppose. I think that in those cases, too, though, that the item was specifically used to store drugs and it was used to transport drugs. Well, the mobile home was being used to store drugs, wasn't it? Not to get where the cocaine was found, but I, I mean, there was a bag of cocaine either in the body shop or the mobile home. I mean, I, I just am, am finding the distinction based on, on remedial versus punitive a, a, a pretty ethereal distinction. Uh, and, and what bothers me about it is if we go your way on the, on the theory that there is, in effect, a, a punitive function going on here by virtue of the innocent owner defense, uh, then we have to face the fact that um, despite that variation, we're still dealing with two kinds of in-rem, in-rem actions, one against the, the guilty owner and, and one all other varieties of in-rem action. And, and we would have put ourselves in the position of saying that the, that the guilty owner uh, has a proportionality objection, the innocent owner has none whatsoever in those cases which make no distinction between innocent and guilty owners, and I suppose the next step down the road, if we go your way, is going to be the due process argument that one cannot go against uh, an innocent owner uh, in an in-rem action uh, simply because the government has no justifiable uh, purpose under the due process clause uh, when at the same time uh, the, the guilty owner is allowed to contest it. And it seems to me that it's, you're, you're, you're setting us off on rather a steep slope if we buy your argument, and I'm trying to see if there's a way out of it. Well, I guess I'm arguing that the, the excessive fines clause should apply to this forfeiture, whether the person is guilty or innocent. It's, it's the actions of the government, I think, that should be scrutinized under the excessive Well, clause. then do we take the next step uh, and say in, in uh, the, the most garden variety of old-fashioned in-rem actions, uh, there is likewise going to be a, a, a proportionality uh, defense, and in fact, it'll always it'll always work, I suppose, because the owner is always going to be innocent, or innocence is always going to be, uh, or strike that guilt is always going to be irrelevant. I don't, I don't think guilt is irrelevant. I think it's one of the facts. Well, it's, it's irrelevant under the under the traditional in rem in rem action, as as you as you were describing it. You're saying it's remedial. It's not punitive. Uh, why isn't the, the proportionality uh, argument, at least, as, at least as raised by a person who claims innocence uh, and can, can uh, show innocence, always going to succeed? Well, I, I don't know. I guess I think that the... Well, if I'm innocent, uh, it's disproportionate to take a nickel out of my pocket, isn't it? That's true, yes. Then it's always going to succeed. I don't know. I guess, uh, again, it depends on what the court sees at different factors. But if a person is innocent and and hasn't done anything, well, then certainly that should be a defense. It should be something the court should consider in deciding whether or not it was proper to, to forfeit property or not. Well, I suppose the government can always decide that certain property is malum in se. In other words, uh, it's contraband, it can be taken. Yes. It has no proper use, or it's dangerous to the public. I would think there would be many reasons where you could take property, even from someone who, who's totally innocent. Yes, that's true, and especially if the property is used. It has a specific purpose in uh, advancing the drug business. If it's specifically uh, uh, designed, for example, to uh, hide uh, contraband, or if it's specifically used for nothing but uh, the, the drug use. Then but none of those categories would be applicable to the property involved here. I would say that's true, yes. That's right. 
Well, are you saying, I'm going I'm to be sure I'm following your argument, are you saying the test should be different depending on whether the, um, assume it's an instrumentality of the, of the of, uh, crime. On the one hand, you have an instrumentality that can be used for no lawful purpose, burglar tools or, or something else. That, that that would have a different test than one where you have an automobile that most of the time it's used for perfectly legitimate driving, but on one or two occasions it's involved in the drug trade. Are you saying there's a different test depending on the character of the use of that which is sought to be forfeited? I, I think that's one of the factors that should be taken into consideration, I guess. that <coughs> Among other factors, one of the factors should be, is this property used all the time for illegal purposes? Or is its use incidental to the particular... Uh, use, illegal use. And do you draw a distinction between instrumentalities of crime and proceeds of, crime, of illegal activity? I believe that proceeds of illegal activity, yes, that's correct. And, and which do we have in this case? Well, this is not proceeds or instrumentalities, I would say, because well, the, these... Then how did they get a right, how could they forfeit it if it isn't one or the other? Because it's under uh, the right to forfeit homes, and uh, conveyances and businesses, real property, whether it's... Uh, yeah, but it's real property, homes, et cetera, that are used in the furtherance of the drug trade. Yes, but I would argue that it's not an instrumentality because it hasn't been specifically adapted for that use, that it's the fact that it was done in that particular place was incidental to it. And you're, you're in effect, arguing we should limit the historic law, like uh, uh, illegal distilleries and things like that, to properties that had no legitimate, basically had no significant legitimate use. I would say that those particular items were, would be more likely to be forfeited than something that uh, had some legitimate use. I guess that's where the, this analysis would come into play. This well, it would seem to me that if they had no legitimate use, that it would always be proportional to forfeit it. I don't know when you could say it's disproportionate to take a, a million dollar distillery would be no different from a ten dollar distillery as far as I could see. If it's always used for, uh, I guess that kind of depends on what the property is, though. If, let's say, someone, again, uh, has lost everything they have, if it's, uh, if it's their business or something like that, and if it's not used, well, then maybe, uh, maybe there would be an argument that it should not be forfeited. Well, but if it's their business and the, whole, and the only use is illegal, it's yeah. not the kind of business we want to preserve. That's true. If, if the sole use is illegal, then it should be forfeited, yes. I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Johnson. Mr. Estrada? <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether the Eighth Amendment requires that civil and rem forfeitures be proportional to the criminal culpability of the owner of the property. Seven of the eight courts of appeals that have ruled on that question, including the Court of Appeals in this case, have concluded that the Eighth Amendment does not require that type of proportionality review. And because the majority view is correct, the judgment of the Court of Appeals in this case should be affirmed. Mr. Estrada, historically, you know the answer to this, historically, at the time the uh, Eighth Amendment was adopted, was there such a thing as uh, in rem forfeiture of real property? Or was it limited to, to ships and, and personal property? The, there is no contemporary case that we've been able to find in which a specific issue was made of the fact. Uh, there is a case, Dobbins Distillery, which is cited in our case, in which the claim was raised 
specifically that the real property in that case could not be forfeited. Uh, and the court dealt with the real property in the case much as it had dealt with the claims of ships and the like without giving any indication whatsoever uh, that, uh, that the real estate by virtue of being that type of property interest couldn't be forfeited under the common law. The statute in that... In that case, Mr. Estrada, was it a leasehold interest or a fee interest? Uh, I think the fee interest was forfeited. The facts of the case were that the claimant had leased the uh, interest to someone who then used it for the purpose of a distillery business. Uh, and uh, the person uh, who was so using it was putting it to to a lawful use so long as he kept records and paid taxes, which he right. failed to do. Now, as a result of the acts of the lessee uh, in not doing what he was supposed to do, the property, including the tract of land, was forfeited to the government. Uh, and uh, the statute in that case was very clear that the tract of land was to be forfeited. Uh, it was a statute passed by Congress, I believe, on July 20th, 1868, and it's found at 15 stat, page 133. Uh, there was no indication in the courts, uh, in how the court dealt with the case, that it thought of this as being in any way unusual. Didn't they set aside, uh, I haven't looked at the case for quite a while, didn't they set aside part of the forfeiture in that case? Um, that is not my... Isn't it? But, and, Recollection and, and your, your understanding is even though it was a leasehold, actually what was forfeited was the fee interest in the property. That is what, uh, how we read the, uh, the case, and the statute, I think, was very clear. It actually uh, uh, made reference to the tract of land uh, rather than to the interest of the owner. What's the name of the case, Mr. Strong? Dobbins, Dobbins Distillery, which is cited in our brief, Mr. Chief Justice. Now... This court has long understood the Eighth Amendment with its references to bail, fines, and punishments to be directed to the criminal law function of the government. And consistent with that understanding, <coughs> this court in Brown and Ferris concluded that the word fine, as used in that amendment and as understood by the framers, meant a payment to a sovereign as punishment for some offense. Our claim here is that civil and rent forfeitures are not fines under the Eighth Amendment and do not otherwise implicate the Eighth Amendment because they have never been considered punishment for an offense. Well, now, doesn't Halper indicate that a civil pecuniary sanction designed to be remedial can be punitive? Uh, I think Halper indicates that there are certain cases in which the court will disregard the label that Congress has chosen to put on, uh, on a given exaction, uh, but under certain very limited circumstances. Both Halper and the case of Bell versus Wolfish, which it cited, uh, do what is in essence an as applied challenge uh, to a specific government conduct. That is, a claim that even though a statute is civil in the usual case, as applied in the case, uh, it should be considered forbidden punishment. Uh, but in that type of as applied challenge, 
both Halper and Bell concentrated on the seventh Mendoza-Martinez factor, uh, which is whether the government conduct seems excessive in relation to the non-punitive purpose that is being claimed for it. The theory of both cases, which was a theory that that won in Halper and lost in Bell versus Wolfish, was that if the government exaction in the specific case is so patently out of kilter with the stated non-punitive purpose, then the court may safely infer uh, that the true purpose was something else, i.e. the desire to use the sanction in the specific case not to further the purpose of the statute, but to inflict what is in essence punishment. Uh, Halper makes very clear uh, that the road to that level of lack of rationality is very long and that there are very few cases in which the specific uh, Where it would meet the standard. Well, should this case be subjected to a Halper inquiry, do you think? I think every case in which the government conduct uh, is challenged can be subjected to a Halper inquiry. We think that this class of cases, including this specific case, is of such a nature that the inquiry should never be successful because since the whole point of the in-rem forfeiture statute is to make the property unavailable for further unlawful use and to compensate the victims of the unlawful use, it will never be a case in which the specific invocation of the forfeiture statute uh, will exceed the, the bounds that the court <coughs> outlined in Halper. Well, we, we can accept in this case, can we not, Mr. Estrada, that uh, the purpose of the forfeiture statute is supplementary uh, to the criminal laws because it deters and punishes? I think uh, you can certainly accept uh, that the civil forfeiture statute in this case is part of a whole set of, of weapons, if you will, that Congress chose to use for a very grave social issue. Um, and we certainly concede that it is part of the statute uh, that certain owners will be deterred from using uh, the property in this way. Uh, we we do not agree with the claim that any time there is any element of deterrence in government action, that that automatically uh, means that the action should be set aside or that it should be examined under heightened const- constitutional scrutiny. Well, in we addition to deterrence, is punishment, is it not, uh, in, in the civil forfeiture context that we have here? We don't think that what we have in this case either as a general matter, uh, or in the specific facts of this case, uh, that we can call this punishment in the constitutional sense, Justice Kennedy. Well, in in the brief that the uh, Justice Department filed in the parcel of land case that we decided earlier this term, um, the uh, Solicitor General's quoted at length from the uh, Senate Committee report indicating that purpose of these laws would deter, to deter and punish further because criminal sanctions 
uh, were ineffective to combat the drug trade. I, I, I just think that we, we ought to recognize that the purpose of this law is to deter and punish. If, if we do recognize that, uh, do you have a more difficult case? Uh, yes, I think we would. I just, I just as a comment on that, on that uh, site, it is often the, the case that, that a word can be used by members of Congress, such as the word punish, in a sense which is broader than the constitutional sense. Uh, and we think that even though there are, in fact, some such statements in the legislative record, uh, that the structure of the statute, the language of the statute, and the history of this type of thing show that this is not punitive in the constitutional sense. And as to that point, I think we, we would simply point to the tests that this court has followed in a case like Mendoza-Martinez. Uh, if, if we thought it was punishment, do you lose? Excuse me, Mr. Stevens. I mean, if, uh, Justice White, I'm sorry. If we thought, uh, if we thought this was a punishment, this amounted to punishment, would you lose? Uh, no. If you thought that this was, in fact, punishment in the constitutional sense, there would still be the claim as to whether it is excessive punishment. The Eighth Amendment doesn't but, outlaw uh, punishment. You would, uh, you would say, however, that if it is punishment, it is, the Eighth Amendment is applicable to civil cases. Uh, yes. I think it is true that Congress cannot get out of uh, the Eighth Amendment simply but by the label that it places on something. It is also Does true. it have to be some connection with a criminal case? Yes, I think this court would have to conclude under the tests that this court has always applied in similar inquiries, like the Mendoza case, uh, that in fact what this statute does is to inflict punishment in the constitutional sense. And if that were the case, then it would follow that, that you could, in fact, look at what the government is doing under the Eighth Amendment. Our principal claim in this case is that something of this type, by reason of history and by reason of the fact that the history still serves a purpose to this day, <clears throat> should not be considered punishment in the constitutional sense. And Do you think uh, historically uh, uh, the excessive fines notion applied at all in civil cases? No. No, and I think uh, when the court went over the history of the excessive fines language in the Eighth Amendment in the Browning-Ferris case, the court concluded uh, that to the framers, the excessive fines, that, that the fines that are mentioned in the Eighth Amendment uh, were payments to the sovereign as punishment for some offense because then and now fines are assessed in criminal cases. <clears throat> so the answer historically would be if, if, if a fine is payable to the sovereign uh, as, a, uh, as a fine, if it's, a, if it's a, as punishment, it doesn't make any difference that it's a civil case. That is right, Justice White. I should say uh, that, that, that in looking at the issue of whether this is in fact punishment in the constitutional sense, there are tests that this court has always applied, most notably the Mendoza-Martinez factors. And using that very test, 
this court only a few years ago uh, ruled that a very similarly worded in rem forfeiture statute was not punishment under the Mendoza-Martinez factors. That case is one assortment of 89 firearms, which is cited in our brief. Uh, and in that case, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, the statute in question mandated forfeiture of all firearms used or intended to be used in violations of the Gun Control Act or any other criminal law of the United States. So, so what if we say that we think this is punishment contrary to your belief? Uh, is there any difference between saying it's an excessive fine or it's a cruel and unusual punishment? We don't think that the constitutional standard in that event would be significantly different because in either case uh, you would be looking at whether the government exaction is extremely out of kilter with what the, with what the government is trying to, to do with the exaction. So what would, uh, what would be the standard under the excessive fines uh, route? We said, well, the this is punishment, and so the excessive fines clause applies. We think that the standard would be comparable to the standard that, that the court used in Harmelin, uh, which is, in the first instance, to ask whether the fine or the punishment is grossly disproportionate yeah. to the so, gravity of the crime. So you do say that the, the standard uh, would be roughly the same? Yes, we do, Justice White. Our principal claim here is that <clears throat> that uh, this type of conduct is not punishment, um, uh, but even if it is, our alternative claim is that under the Harmelin standard, this conduct couldn't be found to meet the level of excessiveness that would counsel setting it aside. Mr. Estrada, historically did these uh, in rem forfeitures um, contain an exclusion for the property of innocent persons? Um, yes, Justice Scalia, in a very limited sense. Um, not innocence of the crime as such. Uh, there is an 1808 case written by Chief Justice Marshall that was cited in this court's opinion in Calero Toledo and uh, the name of the case is Peich versus Ware, which is cited at uh, page 689 of Calero Toledo and is reported at 4 Cranch 347. Uh, that was a case in which a ship had been wrecked on the coast of Delaware. The goods were taken to the coast, and the government brought a forfeiture action claiming that shortly after uh, the ship was shipwrecked, the goods had been found in Delaware without tax stamps. Uh, the government lost that case. Chief Justice Marshall saying uh, what seemed to be a statement of the common law of forfeiture, that a forfeiture wouldn't lie at common law in a case where there was nothing that the person on, on whom the forfeiture would work could have done to keep it from happening. Uh, and we would take that as being part of the common law of forfeiture. Uh, mm. This court's case in Calero Toledo cited that, and in addition said that 
invoking a forfeiture under those facts would likely be a violation of mm. due process. In addition, uh, footnote 27 in Calero Toledo pointed out, excuse me, that since 1790, the federal government has had statutes that provide for the remission of forfeitures as a matter of administrative grace uh, when the owner can show that he was without intent or without willful negligence. Uh, and that goes back to 1790. We think that Congress's decision to include something very much like that in this statute as a matter of statutory right rather than as a matter of grace really doesn't change what the nature of the action doesn't stop doesn't turn it from remedial into punitive correct because that has always been there it, throughout the history um, since 1790 there have been some statutes that actually vest that type of claim with the court and there are some statutes now uh, where uh, a claimant can go to a court and ask that the, that the uh, forfeiture be mitigated rather than going to an agency, but that has always been there since 1790, and making this a matter of, of, of statutory right uh, doesn't change the, the nature of the action. <clears throat> Looking at it from the other side, that's, that sort of provides an answer to the question that I asked your brother, and that is, uh, assuming we do find that there's something punitive here and we don't classify it as immune from review merely as, as a remedial forfeiture, uh, there, there seems then to be a historical basis uh, for us not to have to worry about the case uh, of, the, of the truly innocent owner subject to the classic historical forfeiture. Uh, because that person, um, based on your case from Four Cranch, uh, may very well have had a defense to the forfeiture all along. I think we have to, uh, yes, but I think we have to distinguish two meanings of innocence in this context. When the court has always said that innocence is not relevant, what it has meant, as the cases make clear, is that you needn't be guilty of a crime. However, mm -hmm. it is still possible and indeed likely, uh, that, that you haven't been very careful with your property. The, the case of the, the parents whose uh, child uses the house to store drugs that he sells on the street, you would say if they had reason to know that he was using them, their property would uh, historically be subject, on historical grounds, be subject to forfeiture in the absence of, of, uh, of, of any statutory defense, whereas if... Uh, if they had not in any way been negligent in failing to know of, of uh, the fact that he was using his room as a storehouse for, for the drugs he was selling, uh, they, they would have a defense. Well, I think that that's not necessarily the case because I think what Chief Justice Marshall had in mind and what we have had through the history is the imposition of a, of a very high standard of care. A, a, an on, affirmative obligation really to take, right. to take and, care that it not be used. Correct, know. and I think that that is in fact what we think has historically justified civil forfeitures. The, the civil forfeiture statutes go on the really common sense premise that there are certain uses of property that are so harmful and so socially undesirable that the law must place every incentive on the owner of the property to make sure, even if that person affirmative steps that no one, whether, whether uh, the owner knows about him or not, will inflict those harms 
a society with the honest profit. That, of course, would be your answer to the, to the claim of the, uh, of the so-called innocent owner who was merely negligent. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Yes, and we would say that, as a historical matter, that person wouldn't have that type of a claim because the whole point of having a remedy of this type is to take note of the fact uh, that there are certain things that, that, that only an owner can do, and only an owner can take care of his property and make sure that it is not broken into and turned into a crack house, for example. But, but uh, all that analysis, Mr. Estrada, proceeds from the line of cases uh, that essentially began with forfeitures in the maritime area and forfeitures of certain kind of channels. But isn't it true that uh, at early common law, uh, one of the benefits, at least to the nobles, of classifying certain crimes as felony was so that they could have forfeiture. Forfeiture uh, was intricately bound up with the definition of crime at, at very early English law, was it not? And, and, well, think, and didn't the framers recognize that? There were, there were two types of forfeiture at early common law, uh, Justice Kennedy. One of them was the so-called forfeiture of a state, which really was in personam, uh, and really only came into play when the government proved with a judgment of conviction that the person had in fact been convicted of a crime. Uh, the other type of forfeiture really didn't have anything to do with the crimes that were heard in the King's Bench. It was in, an ex in a completely different court system, the Court of the Exchequer, and that type of forfeiture, which is, which is in essence what is at issue here, uh, didn't partake of the of the rationale that you just gave, I don't think. It, it seems to me that the framers were concerned that uh, uh, the criminal laws not be used to impose excessive punishments, and certainly at, 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 in the early history of England, that was true with reference to forfeitures for felonies. Right, but it, but it is not the same type of forfeiture that is at issue here, Justice Kennedy. If this were a case in which the, pro the, the, the forfeiture could only be had upon the conviction of a crime, uh, we, don't, we would not be here because we would concede that the essence of that sort of action is on the person. What, what we do have here is a statute that really doesn't need the criminal law other than to say that other than to set a standard of conduct. And taking that as a standard of conduct then says if your property has been used or is intended to be used for this purpose, then uh, we will make sure that that harm doesn't come to pass by placing the property in the hands uh, of someone who can give surety to society as a whole that these harms won't happen. Uh, and I think there's a very different type of, of, uh, of forfeiture than the forfeiture that you have in mind, Justice Kennedy. May I ask you a question, Mr. Estrada? Your discussion of two kinds of innocence and the different, uh, your, your colloquy with Justice Kennedy brings this to mind. In the uh, Dobbins distillery case that you described, the landlord knew that the property was going to be used for a distillery and perhaps had a higher duty to be sure they kept the records properly and so forth. Would you say you would apply the same standard in a case like that 
as if just an ordinary landlord rented a flat somewhere to a, a party and had no reason to believe it would be used for anything but a residence, and it turned out that the uh, tenant uh, dealt in drugs in the flat without any knowledge of the, of the landlord. Would you say that the, the, the fee interest of the landlord would be forfeitable equally as uh, on th those facts as in the distillery case? Well, it would not happen under this statute. Because of the of the, I'm just talking about the constitutional objection, or if there was any constitutional problem at all, would you say the analysis would be the same? Yes, in although the case I where you know that it's a kind of business that has special duties and special concerns on the one hand, and just rent it as a residence on the other. I think the mode of looking at the question would be the same in the sense that you would ask the the same questions, i.e., whether the owner did everything that he physically could to ensure that this didn't happen. I think uh, if the owner, for example, never was around to see all of the suspicious people come and go and really made no effort whatsoever to stop by and look at the property, uh, it is possible that that person would lose. Someone who did take those steps uh, we would think that as a matter of common law, he would have exercised every care that the law could ask of him. And if after every care and physically, and after physically doing everything that he could, the harm still came to pass, we would understand the common law as giving that person a defense. And unless the court has any further questions, we'll rely on our briefs. Thank you, Mr. Estrada. Mr. Johnson, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel for the government talks about the Kennedy and versus Mendoza-Martinez criteria. Uh, applying that criteria to this case, it's clear that uh, the actions of the government in this case do constitute punishment. Uh, first is the, that whether it creates an affirmative disability or restraint. Obviously, the loss of Mr. Austin's business and his home was a disability on him. Whether it historically has been regarded as punishment, we'd argue that this type of forfeiture that occurred in this case has historically been regarded as punishment because we argue that it goes back to the time of uh, the framers and prior to that what they understood as punishment to be. Uh, the answer on proportionality be different if it was 600 grams instead of two? I would argue that that would be a uh, more uh, that would be a factor which would be more detrimental to Mr. Austin. Obviously, yes, yes. The Even answer though he's would deprived be of his entire livelihood. <laughs> if it was 600 grams, there's more of a chance that probably the place was being used to store uh, drugs too. That very likely could be the case. But again, that's a it's a analysis that has to be determined. I think by the the court in the first instance by the district court. In other words, all the factors have to be taken into consideration. Um, the third factor is whether it comes into play on a finding of scienter. Uh, in this case, the, the statutes themselves indicate that scienter is a, is a factor. In other words, if the owner does not know of uh, the drug use, then it's a defense. Four, whether the operation will promote the traditional aims of punishment, retribution, and deterrence. In fact, that is the case here, too. This civil forfeiture under 21 U.S.C. 881A4 and A7 does promote So, so the, the more lenient Congress is with respect to the mental elements, see enter, the more it is criminal? 
I don't think I'm saying that. I, I guess. Well, I thought you said that if if the statute provides that lack of scienter is a defense, mm -hmm. then that tends to make it a criminal statute. Did I misunderstand? Yeah, that's you? true. Yeah. In this particular case, so the more lenient Congress is with respect to the party involved, the more it's criminal rather than civil. That strikes me as astounding. Well, one of the factors of uh, of whether or not it's punishment is whether or not scienter is involved, and that in this particular case, if you are an innocent owner, then that is a defense to the to the uh, civil forfeiture. So that's uh, that is one of the factors in this case. Next, whether the behavior to which it applies is already a crime. Um, as I indicated, the, uh, the statutes do tie uh, the civil forfeiture to uh, the violations of the controlled drug statutes. And I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.